We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight, as we always do, to those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Hank Greenberg in 1938, Hatred and Home Runs in the Shadow of War, the publisher, Sports Publishing, the author, Ron Kaplan. Please join me as we welcome home Ron Kaplan to the clubhouse. Well, welcome, welcome home, Ron. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> and just quickly, a mini bio uh, for those who may not know. Ron Kaplan is an award-winning journalist and blogger. He writes about baseball literature and pop culture at Ron Kaplan's baseball bookshelf and is the author of three books, including 501 Baseball Books Fans Must Read Before They Die. His work has appeared in such outlets as Baseball America, Irish America, and American Book Review, among other national and international publications. And just to get us going, uh, as we usually start, if you could just let us know how this book project came about. One of the things, in my previous job, I was the sports and features editor for the New Jersey Jewish News which is, I believe, at the time, was the largest newspaper in terms of circulation in the country. Uh, so while I was there, I started off as a staff writer, and then I became uh, the sports and features editor. While I was a staff writer, I talked the editor into doing a standalone sports section in the paper. Uh, we had the occasional article about Jewish athletes from whatever we, we published five regional publications. Uh, so we condense that into one page every week. So it's finding information on local athletes, events, <coughs> authors doing books. And uh, once the, if you've, most of you I think have been reading newspapers for a while, you see what's happening to the newspaper industry. It's shrinking. And that includes the amount of pages in a newspaper. So they decided the real estate inside the newspaper was too valuable to have that dedicated page anymore, so that morphed into a blog called Kaplan's Corner on Jews and Sports. So I'm always doing, looking for interesting stories, and uh, uh, one of the things, uh, we're about to have the 20th Maccabiah Games in Israel, which are the Jewish Olympics, they're held every four years. Uh, they bring Jews from all over the world. Last, uh, the last one in 2013 brought some 9,000 Jewish participants uh, to Israel to compete in these games. So I did a book on the history of those games for sports publishing. So based on that, they asked me if I would be interested in doing a very specific book on Hank Greenberg, uh, what he went through uh, personally in terms of anti-Semitism, what was happening in the country at the time. And that's basically how that came to be. So if you could just set it up since it is specific, and once we get to the Q&A, if you want to ask other Hank Greenberg questions or other baseball questions to Ron, feel free. But I just want to try to focus on Hank Greenberg in 1938 as much as we can for our part. If you can just set us up a little bit with 1937 leading into uh, what makes 1938 so special with Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg was perhaps the first Jewish superstar in baseball. Uh, there might have been, like Benny Friedman might have been on the scene in football before that, but in baseball. And there was still the stereotype about the bookish Jew with no athletic ability, you know, a scrawny person. Here's this guy who's 
six foot three, six foot four, around 210 pounds, who could hit balls like Babe Ruth. And in the previous year, uh, he set the American League, I don't know if it was a record, but he hit American, American League, 184 RBI. Uh, my, my memory on exact details is a little hazy. Since Somebody here will know. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So uh, that, that was... 183, I studied up right before. So he, that was his job, he felt, was to drive in runs. So uh, he hit home runs too, but as, uh, as we moved into the 1938 season, the, the Tigers had had very successful seasons leading up to that. Uh, they started off very slowly in 38, and they never really got going. So it got to a point where uh, by the middle of the season, Greenberg had amassed in the high 20s. So that's nice, but it's still not that big a deal. But as the season progressed in July, August, and September, he started piling them up to the point where somebody noticed and said, hey, you know, I, like people love to do this at the beginning of the year. If somebody hits three home runs in the first week. Well, at this rate, he'll hit 700 <laughs> home runs by the end of the year. So they started comparing him to Babe Ruth, who had set the record in 1927 of 60 home runs. So he started, it started building and building and building. So the Tigers were really basically a fourth place team that year. So he was the only thing that Detroit had going for it. Uh, and I, I mean that in a very general sense, because remember, 1938, we're still in the middle of the Depression and stuff's going on in Europe that is also a big part of this book. You know, Hitler and, and uh, his fascist buddies are, you know, digging their claws into neighboring countries. Uh, America is trying to stay as distant as possible as it rebuilds itself. So you, you got to look for these feel-good stories, and this was a feel-good story, especially for Jewish fans, but it even started going beyond that to, to non-Jewish fans, to baseball fans. Like, any time, well, not so much now, because if, if somebody starts Coming up to a record now, you start looking, well, is he on anything? But in those days, you're not on anything, and you're doing it all by yourself. So it, it moves from the sports pages to the front pages, to like a little thing maybe on the top of the uh, front page, a little box, a little banner. Some newspapers started having comparison charts between what Babe Ruth did by this amount of time and what Greenberg was doing. So that, that's what was going on in 38. Well, since you just mentioned uh the newspaper coverage. I just want to read something uh, that was fascinating in your book. It has nothing to do with the home runs per se, but it's going to, uh, I think it's important to get out there, and I'd like you just to comment on what you wrote, basically. Um, in a front page item that began, began Oi Gewalt, John McGraw finally has that Jewish ball player he has been looking for these many years. The Sporting News noted Cohen, Andy Cohen, who was the Giants uh, infielder, had, quote, all the natural characteristics of his race, thick, dark hair, dark skin, and keen mentality. This was the accepted journalistic patois of that era. Non-WASP players were often described in exotic terms. The press often referred to Rudy York and other Native Americans' extraction as chief. Of course, they meant it in the nicest possible way. But perhaps the most famous example might be the profile of Joe DiMaggio in the May first 1939 issue of Life magazine. Quote, this is Life magazine. Instead of olive oil or smelly beard grease, he keeps his hair slick with water. He never reeks of garlic and prefers chicken chow mein to spaghetti, 
the popular Newsweekly disclosed. So that was the Sporting News and Life magazine. Not necessarily about Hank Greenberg, but it's, it's setting the background, basically, for what was happening at this time. The, this is the way newspapers wrote. Uh, if you weren't a white male, and, and again, like they meant it in the nicest possible way. He's a credit to his race. And, it's kind of funny because the sporting news was very conservative, and there would be uh, you think like Chief Wahoo of the Cleveland Indians. If you think that's offensive, those are the kind of cartoons they used to put in regularly <clears throat> when describing players of American Native American uh, heritage. Uh, there were constant. There was a, a there was one uh, doubleheader where. Uh, Eisenstadt, Harry Eisenstadt was a teammate of uh, Hank Greenberg, and he won both ends of a doubleheader with Greenberg driving in the winning runs in both games. So the manager of the Detroit Tigers, uh, Mickey Cochran, said, boys, be careful, the Jews are going to go crazy in Detroit tonight, which on the one hand is nice, but on the other <laughs> hand, yeah, and then this is, there, there's a part in there, remember in those days, ball players, a lot of ball players came from the rural south, and they had literally never met a Jew before. There are no Jews in those little small redneck towns where they lived. So uh, Greenberg had a teammate named Jojo White who came from a place a little side out of Atlanta, 20 miles out of Atlanta. They're sitting in the locker room one day and Greenberg notices that Jojo White is staring at him. So he says, can I help you with something? Or what are you looking at? He says, nothing, I just never saw a Jew before. And I'm, not, I'm not even gonna bother to try to do a Southern accent. <laughs> but, uh, and he says, well, see anything interesting? And he said, no, but I th thought you people had horns. And, okay, this is like the 1930s, but even so. I mean, it, it just shows how backwards things were in those days, and even in the, the way it was handled in the press. The, the sporting pages were considered the toy store of the newspaper. Uh, they didn't really care if it made money or not. They probably lost money in the sports section. But everybody loves to read the sports, the sports section of the comics. And the news was reserved for, depending on which newspaper you're talking about, important news or, that was one of the things I found fascinating about doing this research. Uh, Newspapers.com is a website, it's a, a subscription service. And you, you can go and see what they were writing about in those days, the, the whole paper. So you've got your front page stories, your back page stories, uh, the advertisements were amazingly cool. You could buy a refrigerator for 150 bucks. You could buy a car for less than $700. And in those days, newspapers were basically the only way people got their information about sports because this was obviously before television. And even radio didn't have that, that far reach as it does, as it does today. So I found the, the research was uh, uh, amazingly rewarding. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah you... Yeah. Uh, have some very thorough research throughout the book. It's very interesting uh, that it really takes us back to that time. I mean, some of the stuff they would put on the front page, again, depending on the market. I mean, the, the, there were 16 teams at the time. Several teams shared a market. So you might have on the front page that, you know, you know somebody shot this other guy because he ran away with his wife. And that's front page news for these relatively major metropolitan newspapers. And as we go on through the season, you see the war start expanding from maybe a paragraph or two 
on page four to banner headlines later in the year as, as Hitler was stepping up his, his game, for lack of a better word. It, what, uh, what becomes apparent throughout much of this book is uh, 1938, now we're in 2017, in some ways a lot of the same subjects in, in ways are coming up again. Uh, not a ball player, not a Jewish guy who's going to go hit 58 home runs, but a lot no, of the... Ryan uh, Braun, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, Jack Peterson. Yeah, that's true. With a lot of strikeouts, too. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but since the Civil War was just brought up again, uh, I'm not sure why exactly, but it was. So Stream of consciousness. <laughs> uh, here's just a little interesting uh, story. I just want to read this paragraph. Uh, Ron writes... And he mentioned Jojo White, Hank's first uh, roommate. Hank Greenberg's first roommate in professional baseball was joiner Jojo White. He was called Jojo because of the way he pronounced his native state, Greenberg wrote in his memoirs. And I'm not going to get into a southern accent either, but uh, <laughs> no two people could be more different than me coming from the Bronx and him claiming that he came from Atlanta. Well, we pinned him down. It was 25 miles out of Atlanta, a little town, Red Oak, Georgia, that didn't even show up on the map. Anyway, our relationship was terrific. We used to fight about the Civil War every night. Jojo would say, why my granddaddy would chase your granddaddy right up the goddamn hill and run his ass off. I hated to tell him this would have been impossible as my granddaddy had been in Romania at the time. <laughs> but that didn't keep Jojo from carrying on. And I just wanted to, did it come up? Uh, so they met as minor league teammates in the early 30s, then he becomes his first roommate. As you mentioned earlier, he, he's looking at, staring at Hank Greenberg, where is his horns? They're now talking about these things. Uh, did anything come up about what their relationship, uh, it seems like they got along to some yeah, degree. Yeah, I mean, Greenberg got along with all his teammates. I mean, look, he was the, the hero of the team, basically. And he was their uh, bread and butter guy. He's the one who put runs across. He helped them get to World Series and pennants. So, uh, and he was, he was a mensch, you know, uh, one of the, I, I don't know what your questions are, so I don't want to jump ahead too much. That's all right, jump. But one of the things, as one of the big questions that comes up is toward the end of the season, do teams not pitch to him, give him good pitches to hit because they didn't want a Jew breaking Babe Ruth's record. And it's something that he always denied. And I, I had the opportunity to talk to his son now, Steven Greenberg was born well after Greenberg retired as a player, so he never saw him play, but he was around his father enough to know, and I believe him, and I believe all the stories that, that say that he never considered that an issue. He always said that as the season went on, he got tired. Uh, he lost opportunities because what happens is the season started later because the, uh, they only played 154 games. And he played, that year, he played in every single game. He played 155 games because there was a tie. He missed two innings the whole year because he was hit by a pitch. He came out in, the, I believe, the sixth or seventh inning, uh, had x-rays. The x-rays were negative, so he went back the next day and played the remainder of the season. So that shows his durability. Uh, so, yeah, he got, he got along with everybody. And... What, what's not to like? <laughs> you know, he, he was a kind person. Uh, again, uh, jumping ahead. His last year with the Pittsburgh Pirates was Jackie Robinson's first year with the Brooklyn Dodgers. 
And there was a game where Greenberg was playing first base, and Robinson bunted the ball, and the Pirates pitcher made a bad throw to first, which moved Greenberg into the path of the runner. Robinson crashes into him, and everybody's like, oh, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a fight? Because this black player hit the white player. Nothing happened. Greenberg helps him up. Subsequent, uh, subsequent meeting at first base, I think Greenberg was the one who was the batter at this point, and he told Robinson, hang in there. You're a good player. You're going to make it. And Robinson gave so much credit to Greenberg. Uh, in every book you read, every biography you read, there, there's going to be something, every good biography, you know, thorough biography, there's going to be something where he gives credit to Greenberg for that kind of encouragement. Greenberg even went so far as to suggest they have dinner, but Robinson thought that would be too much of an imposition on him. You did touch on a few questions that I, I was going to get yeah, to. We will, we'll, no, that's good. But since you just brought up Jackie Robinson, I just want to read uh, each chapter. By the way, the chapters are by, by month. It takes us through the season. And uh, each chapter opens with a, a very interesting quote. And the month of May opens with a quote by Bertie Tebbets. Uh, there was nobody in all of baseball who took more abuse than Hank except Jackie Robinson. It was obviously... It's amazing that he went to play for Detroit. He had the chance. He was scouted by the same scout who signed Lou Gehrig. Uh, I forget his name. Sure. Thank you, sir. Uh, he invited Greenberg to the ballpark. Greenberg saw Gehrig playing, and he knew that there was no way that Greenberg was going to be entrenched at first base for a long time. So he signed. He also had a chance to sign, you mentioned John McGraw before. His father arranged for a tryout with the Giants, and, and Greenberg, who was funny because he was always looking for that Jewish player to bring fans yeah. in, he looks at Greenberg and says he'll never make it. He's too, too slow and awkward. Well, obviously history proved him wrong. But... Uh, Anti-Semitism was, aside from automobiles, Detroit's biggest <laughs> business. You, you, had, you had Henry Ford, who was probably one of the most notorious and high-profile anti-Semites at the time. And you had a radio personality by the name of Father Charles Coughlin, who was like the predecessor of a Rush Limbaugh, only worse. Uh, <laughs> He, he criticized every chance he got. He criticized Franklin Roosevelt's Jew deal for getting the country back on its feet, things like that. Uh, Greenberg actually worked for a time for Henry Ford in the offseason, uh, which, which I mentioned in, in the book. It, it, it had to be some sort of window dressing job. In a lot of instances, uh, companies would hire ballplayers just because they're ballplayers and, you know, they're they're there for public relations to shake hands with customers, and they don't really have a job job. Uh, I mean, somebody like Greenberg, uh, somebody like Jojo White might have been, you know, back in, uh, in his, his little town in uh, Georgia at the seed and feed store. But uh, he had, Greenberg had to endure a lot of taunts from the opposition, a lot of taunts from, uh, uh, from fans. Did anybody here see the movie 42? The scene where... Ben Chapman comes out of the dugout to rail at Jackie Robinson with the most vile words you can imagine. And afterwards, he tries to pass it off as that's part of the game. We call Hank Greenberg a kike. We call, uh, when we play exhibition games against Joe DiMaggio, we call him the WAP, and they love it. You know, whether they love it so much is, uh, is open to interpretation. There was an incident 
instance where Greenberg was, I believe, facing the Chicago White Sox, and somebody said something from the dugout. And after the game, he was usually took it with a grain of salt. But after this game, he couldn't take it anymore. He went to, into their clubhouse and demanded to know who said that, to be a man and stand up and admit it, and no one did. So he shamed them in that regard. But yeah, he t took a, a, lot of, a lot of abuse. And it's, just speaking of, uh, so you had this first Jewish star, and I think in some ways, because he was such a big a physical man, it, it helped, uh, well, putting aside the home runs and everything, but just I think he was viewed differently than he would have been if he was a, a smaller person. Uh, Could you repeat that's that? That's all right, I won't repeat that. <laughs> Siri, was that Siri? Siri did not RSVP. How did she get it? Uh, but uh, anyway, just a little quick note. There's a photo in here. Uh, Lou Gehrig was a complete tank. Uh, and there's a photo in here with Hank Greenberg and Lou Gehrig together. He makes Lou Gehrig look like me. I mean, uh, he like towers over him. And, uh, he was this huge guy, Hank Greenberg. He was, he was, a rel relative to the time. I mean, nowadays he'd be... Average? He'd be a second baseman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, like nowadays, you know, six foot four and two ten is, like you say, a second baseman. But in, in those days, he was a specimen. And, and no doubt it kept a lot of uh, Yahoo's, uh, made them keep their mouths shut where, you know, as, uh, you know, if I were playing something, they might have no hesitation in, in saying something about me. Yeah. Well, that makes two of us. Uh, <laughs> And this is not a, there's no spoiler alert. We know that he, he ends up not hitting the 60 home runs. Uh, but I just, since Ron alluded to, did anti-Semitism come into the home run chase that he wasn't pitched to? Uh, and Ron spoke about that. But I just want to read what he wrote in the book, because uh, I'm sure this, these questions are going to come up. Uh, years later, Greenberg reminisced about the end of the season and just falling short of one of the most revered of records. Quote, some people still have it fixed in their minds that the reason I didn't break Ruth's record was because I was Jewish. The ballplayers did everything they could to stop me, Greenberg told Lawrence Ritter for the glory of their times, the classic collection of all oral history by ballplayers in the first half of the 20th century. That's pure baloney. The fact of the matter is quite the opposite. So far as I could tell, the players were mostly rooting for me, aside from the pitchers. The reason I didn't hit 60 or 61 is that I ran out of gas. I once asked Hank about the conspiracy, wrote Ira Burkow, in a column following Greenberg's death in 1986. Not true, he said. I got some hits and hit some balls, but I couldn't get them over the fence, he said. In fact, there were people in baseball rooting for me to break the record. He recalled trying for inside the park homer late in the season in which the umpire called him safe at home when I was really out. And I just want to, since Greenberg references an umpire, I just want to uh, read something else, and I found it fascinating. I don't think this would certainly happen today, and I think it says a lot about Hank Greenberg's personality. Uh, towards the end of the season, certain, uh, there, there are makeup games, uh, so there's now double headers, there's shortened games. So there's an exchange between home plate umpire George Moriarty and Hank Greenberg as the last game of the season against the Indians in Cleveland was called after seven innings on account of darkness, so he loses a chance for more at-bats. I'm sorry, Hank, but this is as far as I can go, is what the umpire says. And then Hank replies, that's all right, George. This is as far as I can go, too. I just found it fascinating that uh, the respect 
that an umpire had for him, and, and vice versa. The, the, he had great respect for umpires, and, and he went out of his way to be nice to them. Uh, whether that was a psychological ploy that they would remember later on, I don't know. I don't think so. I think he was just that kind of person who went out of his way to make people feel better about themselves. Uh, I want to talk, if I may, a yeah, little yeah. bit about the, the shortened games at the end of the year. I started to talk about it before. At the beginning of the season, a lot of games were lost because of rain, and they had to be made up as parts of double headers that usually happen at the end of the season as, as time went on. And as Jay says, you know, it gets, like, like Yogi Berg used to say, it gets dark early out there uh, <laughs> this time of year. The, the, the games were shortened, and uh, there were, I don't remember exactly the number, but there were at least five games that were shortened because of darkness. Uh, I try to balance that with some games that might have gone into extra innings, but there's no question that he lost at-bats. Also, and I'm surprised they don't keep track of this nowadays. They keep track of everything nowadays. There's no way of knowing how many foul home runs he hit. You know, there are a couple of uh, newspaper articles that say it just went foul by a foot or mere inches or whatever. But there is also, you have to take into consideration those days, there's a lot of hyperbole in newspaper reports. You know, that they really gussy the story up a little bit. And even, even with that, the reference to the umpire George Moriarty, I've seen, uh, I think that comes from his uh, own memoir, but I've seen other references where Moriarty was not the home plate umpire at the time. Which is, I, I, I spoke with Ira about this, about you know, the memory. Memory, I find memoirs fascinating because it's, it's your, the way you remember things, obviously, and it's open to only your interpretation. It's not an academic study. So I asked it, Ira, I mean, is this the way things really happen? Because I don't know if, you're, if you've read Greenberg's memoirs, but it's basically Ira writing it after Greenberg had passed away. Uh, the Greenberg family wanted the story told. Hank wanted his story told. Unfortunately, he was dying of cancer. And he basically dictated notes. And Burko comes along, and he's got like a 1,000 pages of manuscript that he did a marvelous job turning into uh, a, a, a lovely memoir. But as far as the accuracy of every little thing he said, it's the same thing with, with Lawrence Ritter, you know, talking to these old ballplayers. He was talking to them when they were in their 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, who knows how accurate things were. And, you know, as this time goes by, you know, you know, 300-foot home runs become 400-foot home runs, <laughs> and you run around the bases in, you know, 30 seconds instead of 40 seconds, you know, things like that. But, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating research project. Oh, absolutely. Well, I have plenty of questions, but uh, I don't want to take all the time from our knowledgeable crowd, so does anyone uh, want to lead off? I've heard, like with Sandy Koufax, and I, I would imagine Hank Greenberg, did the team ever stay in places or try to like eat in places in these towns where he wasn't welcome because it was restricted? Not so much, no, not, no certainly not Koufax. Uh, it, it's funny you mention that. Greenberg, I would say no for that. Uh, for that. Uh, when Greenberg retired and became general manager of the Cleveland Indians. He had Larry Doby on the team, he had Satchel Page on the team, and when the team was looking for places to stay, they came up against just that situation, and Greenberg might have been stuck the first time because they couldn't make other arrangements then, but he, he 
would not go back to those places afterwards. Uh, it was like, you, you take us all, you don't take any of us. But it, it, it's funny, when Greenberg would come back to play the Yankees in New York, he would never stay with his family. He would always stay in the, the New Yorker hotel. But he brought his, some of his teammates home for dinner. And you can imagine, this is obviously the first taste of kosher cuisine. <laughs> so uh, one, one, of the, uh, one of the things that, uh, like most parents of that generation, uh, Greenberg's parents weren't thrilled with the fact that he wanted to be a professional athlete. But they, like, like, like in the movie, for the Pride of the Yankees, you know, they didn't want their son, but they got used to the celebrity aspects of it. <laughs> and, and Greenberg's mother said if he hit 61 home runs, she'd make him 61 pieces of gefilte fish or matzo balls. <laughs> so he says that, that saves her the trouble. That's it. Was it a kosher home? How observant was he and how observant were his parents? His parents were observant. He grew up in a kosher home. He went to services with them regularly. Once he was an athlete, obviously uh, not so much. Uh, obviously he didn't play. He was famous for not playing in a crucial game in a pennant drive in 1934. That's where that Edgar Guest poem comes in about two Irish fans attending the game that Greenberg didn't play because of his young kipper. Uh, and they, they, were, they, would, they realized they would probably lose the game, but they honor him for being true to his religion. It was kind of funny, but in uh, the 1935 World Series, he was uh, hit in the first game. And he didn't realize at the time but his arm was broken. He realized it later in the game because he went barreling into the Cubs catcher, who was almost as big as he was, and he came out of that. He could, couldn't play anymore. Uh, I don't know if they took x-rays right away, but he just couldn't play. Now, game six of that World Series was on Yom Kippur. So, of course, he was out of the rest of the series, but I'm just wondering what he would have done in that situation. Which, would he still have sat out? Or now that you're in a World Series, it's a different story. What do you play? And you have to hope, from a, a Yiddishkeit point of view, <laughs> that he would not have played, because that would just have undone all the good that he had done in the uh, 34 season. Before we just before we get to the next question, just to follow up a, a little bit, uh, unrelated but related to Barry's question, uh, for you baseball fans, probably I, I think a lot of New Yorkers don't even know about this, but. Before Hank Greenberg's family did better financially, they lived in what's now the West Village on Barrow Street. And there's this plaque, which is still there on the building. It's not one of the nice West Village buildings. It's on Barrow just below uh, West 4th Street. Uh, you'll see a little building. It's right across from one if by land, two if by sea, for, for those of you who may know the, the very nice and fancy restaurant. It's right across the street, and there's a plaque still there right next to the front entrance about Hank Greenberg living there. So whether, the, I guess there was kosher food in that, in that apartment, but anyway, that's where he lived. Um, I don't know where I read this, maybe it was earlier, but I had heard somewhere that, and totally off base, Henry Ford's reasoning for liking, for Greenberg being so good was that he was only half Jewish, to try to rationalize it. I, I, I mean, he wasn't. No, no. No, Henry Ford, yeah, basically. Henry Ford, and actually, can I, can I go back to yeah, something yeah. you mentioned before about some things that were happening in 1938 or happening now? Uh, I handed in the manuscript before Election Day, 
So there's no way of knowing what the political situation would be now. And I don't really want to get too political here, but I find it disheartening that some of these things are coming back. In 1938, you had the situation where the United States did not want to accept Jewish refugees from, from Germany and Eastern Europe. And now we have the situation where our president didn't want to accept Syrian refugees. You had a situation in 1938 where the, the watchword was America first, right? Do I have to say it? You know, that, that's what, I'll say it, that's what seems to be going on now. Uh, and it, it's just you know, troubling, you know, like the, 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 the old uh, Peter Allen song, everything old is new again. But as far as, uh, Henry Ford was awarded on his 75th birthday with Germany's highest honor to a non-German. It's the same award that was given to Charles Lindbergh a few years before, and Lindbergh was a big America firster. Uh, Eddie Cantor, which was a very popular entertainer at the time, uh, went on a public uh, relations campaign begging, demanding that Henry Ford send back, refuse the award, send it back. Ford is one of these people who is like, you know, I may not like Jews, but when you find a good one, you know, you got to go. He did hire him for that. I think you know, some of my best friends are Jewish. Maybe that's why he gave Greenberg that job to prove that I'm not an anti-Semite. It's like Donald Trump can't be an anti-Semite because his son-in-law is Jewish. You know. Yes, sir, in the back with the hat. Uh, you may have said this earlier. I was late. Did Hank Greenberg have a uh, Pee Wee Reese like Jackie did? He, there was no armor on the shoulder type thing. Oh, you mean did he have one? Yes. Uh, no. He, I don't think he needed one. Remember, Greenberg was white. You know, for everything else, the, the Jewish thing might have been mumbling, but I don't think... terrible. No. Well, terrible is a relative term. He played in the minor leagues in some deep south towns. He played, like, in Beaumont, Texas. Uh, I would imagine there aren't a whole lot of... Imagine you can't get a minion in Beaumont, Texas <laughs> in the early 30s. Uh, but but he, <laughs> maybe not even today. Well, he had a teammate, Harry Eisenstadt, uh, who was, I'm not sure if he was a rookie or a second year guy. Uh, I think he was a rookie, and he took him under his wing. He took Eisenstadt okay. under his wing because he was. Wasn't the same. It wasn't, no, no, no. But he took Eisenstadt under, and he gave him advice. He taught like veterans do with rookies. You know, you find somebody, you take them under your ring, you say, this is how you behave. And one of the things he suggests is don't play cards with your teammates because if you lose, it's fine. But if you win, suddenly you're a cheating Jew. Yeah. Uh, and he also said never play the religion card. You know, don't say, you know, like I lost that because the umpire called a bad play against me because I'm Jewish. He said never do that because they'll never forget that you tried. Did, did he spend his off seasons in Detroit, or did he have a barnstorm? I, I bring up barnstorm because uh -huh. Dizzy Dean used to barnstorm, yeah. and Dizzy Dean called him Bose during yeah, the 34 yeah, World Series. Yeah. But I'm sure I, I, my gut feeling is it was an act. But did he have any relation with Dizzy Dean other than that World Series? I don't think so. I mean, I, I really like the focus of this book was very specific. So, and that's one of the things that I'm finding when I, when I hear stories about the book, and people are disappointed it's not a full bio. It says, you know, it's right here in the cover, you know, 1938. If you want a full bio, 
you know, you go elsewhere. So uh, John Rosengren's book. John uh, Rosengren. Yeah. Uh, somebody else wrote a smaller yeah. one. Uh, Karen? Karen? That I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jerome. I don't know. He doesn't usually write about baseball, but I, I don't know if he Barnsler. He might have earlier in the year, uh, but he did make uh, his home later in his career. He did stay in Detroit year-round. He stayed in, uh, you know, in, in those days, people lived in hotels. You know, the, the, he, he talks about at the, the very beginning when he wasn't making a whole lot of money. You know, he said if you wanted to impress a waitress, you know, you'd leave a 25-cent tip. You know, uh, but later on, he started, he, he was the first $100,000 player. Right. So which was a lot of money in those days. You know, to, to some of us, it's still a lot of money, but uh, certainly not, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing where, like if DiMaggio were playing now, and you'd be called into the general manager's office and say, hi, partner. Well, now you get to own the team. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more <clears throat> specifically about what was going on in In 1938, not so much. Ball players are very reticent to speak out publicly, not like they do today, uh, which is obviously well within their purview if that's, that's what they want to do. They're people, you know, they have opinions, they have rights to express those opinions. Uh, but in those days, before free agency, when you were like, it was kind of like a plantation mentality, you know, because you were owned by the team until they decided what to do with you, trade you, release you, whatnot. So players pretty much kept their mouths shut, but at one point Greenberg did say, and it's in the book as, as we authors love to say, uh, that every time he hit a home run, he, thought he felt he was hitting a home run against Hitler. He was showing America that Jews are not these weak people that, or these parasites or, or these uh, whatever other ill thing you want to say about them, that they're being portrayed by Germany. Germany was laying all their woes, they were blaming the Jews, and that was being picked up in some circles of America also, obviously. You know, Ford, Coughlin, and, and others. Uh, there's the America Bund movement, which uh, was all over the country to, uh, to various uh, extensions, you know, small, large. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was a, a big problem. And again, it was in the middle of the Depression, so who, you have to find someone to blame. Why are we in the Depression? Well, let's blame the Jews. Why not? Excuse me, that's the second time you said that. What? We were not in the middle of. We were it was not in the, the tail end of the depression. It was the tail end. Depression ended in 1935. We were in the middle of the second depression. Okay, okay, okay. And I think people don't realize that. I think Roosevelt saved the country. He saved the country and then put it right back into the dump. Again. There's no question. And in, in 19, I believe it was 1937 when he tried to pass new. Uh, and packed the court. And, and it, it failed. And we and went into another, and we went into another recession in 1937. So that, that's why I lump it all together. It might not be historically accurate, but by the yeah. way, just uh, kind of the opposite of your uh, the answer to uh, the opposite of your question. Research that Ron uncovered. Uh, there's a story in here from a, a Jewish uh, newspaper that talks about how important Hank really was, and I just want to read. It's only two sentences. Uh, for the next few weeks, the incidents in Palestine, in Germany, in Czechoslovakia take a back seat. The Boston Jewish Advocate printed on its op-ed page. They are not important. 
We have had pogroms before. We have had wars before. We have had trouble with the Arabs before. But never before have we had a Jewish home run king. <laughs> and then this was, we, I, I didn't really talk about the Jewish press. Uh, sports has never been a big thing in the Jewish press. Uh, I mean, it's, it's mentioned, it's certainly not like, uh, look, most Jewish papers come out once a week. Uh, and the, again, the real estate, the amount of pages they have is very valuable and, and how they make, uh, any paper makes its bread and butter is through advertising. So there has to be some sort of ratio advertising to narrative, to editorial content. And there were more important things than sports for a lot of these Jewish publications. But as Greenberg started going through the season, papers that never wrote about sports before started including him uh, and they, they would do like a weekly update on how he was doing. So, yes sir. Well, I was uh, interested uh, to know whether the bench jockeying you got to him in any way, just as a staple of the game at the time, doesn't exist anymore. But uh, I think that from what you're saying, he had great respect for all the players. I won't say respect, but he had tolerance. 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 That's why I say maybe there was one guy or, or a few guys that, that really Well, Chapman, him. certainly. Yeah, Chapman. Chapman. He was, uh, he, he, was, uh, he there, there was a ball player everybody thought was Jewish. His name was Buddy Meyer. He played for like 20 years or so, mostly with the Washington Senators. He was a good second baseman. Uh, and there was an incident where the Senators were playing the Yankees, Ben Chapman was on the Yankees at the time, and he slid high into Chapman and, and spiked him in the thigh. And Maury, uh, Shirley Povich, who was a, a writer for the Washington Post for 70 years or so, uh, said that uh, Chapman carved a swastika in Meyer's thigh. So based on that, everybody assumed that Meyer was Jewish, and he never denied it. So that's why he never said, I'm not Jewish. So that's why he just let everybody go on thinking that he was Jewish. It's only after he dies and is buried in a Christian cemetery that people realize, oh, <laughs> we might have been wrong. But pretty much every book, you, every book about Jewish baseball you look at still includes, well, this was before he was outed as a non-Jew. Uh, they have him in there as, as like the best Jewish second baseman of all time. <laughs> Dissipate, yes. Gone completely. Uh, I spoke with Ron Bloomberg a few times, and he grew up in the South, and he played in the South. And he came, he was in the minors in the early 60s, early mid 60s, before he came up to the Yankees. And see, he said he had teammates who were Klansmen. But they accepted him because he was on their team. But he, he got porn comments. I, I got skewed. Uh, I, was, I would say half a dozen times at least. I played down in Texas and um, in Georgia, up, upper in the Midwest. Played on the Rays organization. And my name's Rosenthal, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like uh, you know like Jackie Robinson. I'm not saying that, but you know there, there were barbs from the sure. from, from the fans. Yep. And uh, you know you talk about Minnesota, I would, I, who would have thought? You know? So, um, but I, you know it, it just sort of wasn't that big a deal. So. I, I just, well, again, it, it also depends. How you grow up, when you grow up. Uh, I, I know that today's players, you know, 
when I have occasion to talk to them, that's one of the questions I ask. Do you ever have problems with anti-Semitism? And pretty much to a man, they say no. They don't have it anymore because now baseball is so international. I mean, if you start picking on every person who's not white, you're going to be very lonely because most of your teammates are going to be from a Latin American country, uh, an Asian country, uh, Canada, although most of the people in Canada, are, I guess, are white who play baseball. I don't know. but And, and even now, didn't they just have the first uh, South African major leaguer right. came up? So that, that you, you grow up playing with a wide variety of people anymore. So I, I hope that that's not as much of an issue as is. I'll just mention one thing. Uh, everybody knows the problems Bill Cosby has been having over the last few years. Many, many years ago, before the Cosby show, he had several shows. There was one where he was uh, a uh, physical education teacher in a Los Angeles school. And I remember this very distinctly. There was one episode where he's in charge of a Little League team who's terrible, like Bad News Bears, terrible. And along comes this transplanted Jewish kid with payas and a yarmulke. I know he's the best player on the team, but he can't play in the big game because it's on... There you go. And the kids don't understand that, and they make fun of his payas and why you're wearing that beanie on your head. And, uh, of course, in a TV show like that, all, all's well that ends well, they just move the game to Sunday, and everybody's happy. <laughs> but, but that's something that still sticks with me, how, how terrible the writing was, how terrible the acting is, and how cliché it was. And this was, again, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Jerry, what, what years did you play? Uh, 61 to 63. Yes, sir. Uh, the all, all ethnic groups that come here to America have the problem of the, uh, I guess, racism against them, right? I, Some I, more than others? Is that nowadays, I. Uh, any, any time you. Uh, well, any time. In the beginning. Well, in the beginning, re remember, you know, prior to. Jewish. Whatever German, uh, Going back to the late 50s, early 60s, perhaps, you know, then you started having more and more players coming from Latin American countries. There's the, the language difficulties. Uh, but but since, since that time, I mean, Lee, what, what would you say about that? Help me out here. Uh, well, it, Let me put you on the spot, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the... Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. It's a, um, the myth is the, the melting pot, but it, it, and it, it's something we like to believe. And now we, we're, I mean, if anyone said anything remotely ethnic, uh, you know, as a slur or even as a joke for it, it would be all over the news. Well, look what just but happened to uh, yeah. what, Adam Jones? Yeah. Right. But after time goes by, that dissipates. Again, dissipates, yes, completely it, gone. No, I no. never said that, but yeah. it dissipates. And that every, every Outwardly. group goes through this. Yeah, 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 I imagine so. I imagine when, when uh, more and more Japanese came over and here. And internment camps, uh, they had, when they came here, they had problems. Oh, 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 oh you're, you're, okay, you're not talking about baseball anymore. You're just talking about in general. In general. Oh, well, of let's course. Let, uh, we can't yeah. have a whole discussion about <laughs> the hatred of a, of a human being. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, all right, people hate each other for thousands of years. That's the summary. That's the summary. That, that unfortunately, will never end.
Yes, sir. Uh, a couple things. One, Buddy Meyer's father was actually Jewish. Okay. Um, and also, um, I had heard this somewhere that there were certain places in Detroit that, and this is where um, Spike Briggs lived um, and Frank Maven lived, where even if Greenberg really wanted to live, there was sort of the oh, sure. Sure. that sure. wouldn't be necessarily welcome. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No matter how famous you might be, if you're not a member of that community, uh, look, Elston Howard wanted to move to a, a nice area of New Jersey. He couldn't get in, of course. He was like, you, it, it's hard to explain the, the, the real difference between being Jewish and being African American in terms of the problems that he faced. There's no hiding the fact that you're African American. There is hiding the fact that you're Jewish, not in Greenberg's case, but there are plenty of players who change their name to make it less ethnic. So it, one, they wouldn't be seen as Jewish, and two, it was a shame to the family. It was a shame to the family. They didn't want to shame their family by having that name spread around. Boxes did that very frequently also, but uh, that's why they made such a big deal about Andy Cohen, you know, keeping his name you know, as, as far as, uh, as owning up to his Jewish identity. Uh, as far as, uh, I don't want to get into the whole Jewish identity thing, because now uh, there's a publication called the Jewish Sports Review. It comes out every other month, and they do a bang-up job about identifying Jewish players, but they have certain criteria. And as opposed to the religious criteria, you say his father was Jewish, but his mother wasn't. So his mother's not Jewish in the religious definition of Judaism, he's not Jewish. Nowadays, the Jewish Sports Review has a much wider, you know, many of the ma Jewish major leaguers today are from mixed religious com uh, couples. Some going back a few questions, um, and just made me rethink something that was said, you know, you quoted, um, I'm sorry, you have to be careful. You quote, uh, <clears throat> Hank Greenberg was quoted in the book about, you know, thinking that he was just tired at the end of the season. But then, when you were talking about what he coached the other Jewish player, like never blame anything that you were Jewish, mm -hmm. you know, I think that there, you know, what he said about just being tired becomes suspect then. True, in, in a way, because if his own advice right. was to never blame anything that, you know, outwardly because you were Jewish, um, and there are, there are, experts I read, I don't know, I'm not the biggest, but these guys know everything, but, um, you know, but I have a son who is starting to know a lot, so I read a lot with him, but um, there are experts that have, like, reviewed whatever's available on film and tape and have seen, have indicated that they think that he wasn't pitched to. So I just think it's interesting because even though he's tried to stop that from being the, the thing, by the fact that that's his own advice to not say anything, you can't really be sure. And it's just an interesting fact. Like, you, we could debate it all night, but I just, it's another way to think about it. Once I believed what he said until you said that about his advice to the other Jewish Look, player. You, you, now it's like a little suspect. You can never know what's in a person's right. heart and mind. Uh, there's an appendix in the book where I, and I'm not the biggest sabermetric person in the world <laughs> when it comes to analyzing everything, but there's an appendix in there which shows the games he played in September, uh, 
one of the things that's an issue is you're bringing up rookie pitchers who are nervous, mm -hmm. who are wild. On the other hand, you have veteran pitchers who are tired. Mm -hmm. So I, I did a little as elementary because I, I'm a writer, I'm not a mathematician. Mm -hmm. sure. So uh, where I could, I, I balance how many walks they had in September, how many walks they had to Greenberg versus what they did the rest of the year. And they're pretty close. So, and another thing for all the anti-Semitism you might suspect he would uh, garner, he was very infrequently hit by a pitch. Not to say that he wasn't pitched close or knocked down, but he was rarely hit by a pitch. So the pitchers weren't, <coughs> were they throwing at him again? You know, you don't have that statistic of almost hit by a pitch. You only have the statistic of hit by a pitch. Just like you don't have the foul home runs. Also, what what's becomes very clear in your book as you take us through the whole season, which it, it never really hit me until I read this, uh, you would think somebody who hits 58 home runs is somewhat consistent throughout the year, hitting just hitting home runs, home runs, home runs. There are times he goes... A long, long yeah. time with, with nowhere even close to a home run. Well, they say so, home run streaker, home run hitters are very streaky. Yeah. But he had a stretch of like 11, 12 games without a home run. That, yeah. So. And he just picked it up at the end of the year. He didn't hit any over his last five games. Although prior to those five games, he had a couple games where he had two home runs, one right. home run or a, a lot. In, in also, the, the way we would probably know this, but the, the, the way Babe Ruth got to 60 home runs, I believe he hit 17. Was it 17 in the yeah. last month of the season? He had 17 home runs in the last month of the season. That's how he got there. So now you have another guy. He has to pretty much match him with that, which is extremely difficult. Oh, and the pressure he must have felt. Right. Ruth had no pressure. Everything Ruth did was, was done for the first time. So if he hit 59 home runs, gegezun. <laughs> you know, if, he, if, he hit, if he hit 48 home runs, also good. But anybody who came after him, Jimmy Fox came close. Right. He had uh, 58 home runs, I think, in 1932. Uh, I haven't done any research to what kind of pressure he was under, but obviously because Greenberg was Jewish, it's, it's more of a big deal. But the, the pressure he felt, uh, they compa I compare him a little bit with Roger Maris. Of course, when Maris was going for 61 home runs, there was television. So you have a whole other batch of reporters asking the same damn questions every day. How do you feel? Are you nervous? How did it? What did you have for breakfast? And his hair is literally falling out from the stress of this. And Greenberg was facing that, but for, to a, a relatively smaller extent. But I'm, I'm sure you know, he had to have felt a ton of pressure too, not just for doing it as a ball player, for doing it as a Jewish ball player for his people. Speculate. What, what if he hit in that 155th game? He hit three home runs. You mean that, in that Which, tie game? No, there, in, the, in, the, in the one extra game. There were people, there were reporters who were saying earlier on that that's not really fair to compare Ruth and, and Greenberg because it's it's different situation. You know, he did it. They were saying that. Gr Ruth missed a few games. Well, tough he missed a few games. You know, it, Greenberg should be penalized because he's a more durable player. You know, I mean, there's never ever going to be the exact parallel situation. So there's always going to be some kind of, well, he had this situation going for him. If he plays in Colorado, the air is thinnered. So do you count those home runs? Should that, those home runs be counted on the same 
There, there's a great book. I, I haven't read it yet, but I heard a great podcast on the Leonard Lopate show a few days ago with Keith Law, who's the author of a book called Smart Baseball. Right. Fascinating book. And, and like I said, I'm not really a, a numbers guy, but he's showing how the way you used to, the metrics that you used to use to determine who was a good ball player in Root's time, in Greenberg's time, in Mantle's time, don't necessarily apply now. And they always say, well, how would Ruth be if you were playing today? If you were playing against relief pitchers who throw 100 miles an hour late in the, the game, if he was playing night ball, if he was flying coast to coast. You know, there's no way of knowing that. It's a waste of time arguing because it's never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like, what was Greenberg's walk strikeout relation? ratio during that year and how did it compare to his other years? I think they were pretty similar. He, he was one of those, he hated striking out. He hated to strike out. Ruth didn't mind striking out. Ruth's philosophy was I, I swing big, I hit big, or I miss big. He didn't really care, but it was an embarrassment to Greenberg. And I think one year he led the league in strikeouts and he was terribly, he felt like such a failure. But he, he, he led the league in walks several times too. Uh, I don't know, remember offhand that particular year how he did, but uh, I imagine it was fairly close to his lifetime numbers. Yes, sir? A quick one. Yeah. You're talking about strikeout ratio. It's like I, I, from right, Joe Sewell mm -hmm. is the fellow who only struck out four to 12 times a yep. year. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. A lot of discipline. Nowadays, especially, it's funny, you see how the games play now with these defensive shifts, which they, they say that it makes the players try to hit the ball in the air more because if they hit it on the ground into the shift, they're not going to get on base. So it just changes every so often. It just changed, the game changes dramatically. Yes, sir. Let's steer back to the war, hmm? which is, I, I just actually looked it up. I was trying to remember exactly when Crystal Knopf was after the season ends. Yes. Um, but certainly you said that the headlines yeah. are gaining steam during the season. Was anyone looking to Hank Greenberg to make a comment or? You, you didn't look for athletes. Athletes were all. not speakers yeah. and they didn't speak for the community. They didn't speak for anybody. They were just dumb athletes. And then he never. Um, he was one of the first, if not the first. Community, I don't think he, you needed him to speak out in his own community. People know what was going on. But. Uh, he was one of the first, if not the first, player to enlist. Uh, and in fact, he had served, he had already served, and he was honorably discharged the day before Pearl Harbor. He was on his way, he was traveling back to, either from New York to Detroit or Detroit to New York, when he heard about Pearl Harbor, and he immediately re-enlisted. And he lost, this is another one of those things, that they, he lost three full years and two partial years to serving his country. And so there's a lot of speculation. Well, what would he have done given the, that extra, basically works out to four full seasons. So you figure even if he had an average season, like 35 home runs, 120 RBIs, he'd be way up there in the, in the record books. But, but that was a lot of uh, athletes at the time, like Ted Williams. Ted, well, Ted Williams served two wars. Two wars. He, yeah. Yeah, you had players like that, but, but certainly not to the extent of Williams or Greenberg. Yeah, certainly a lot of a lot of uh, ball players, major and minor leaguers, and athletes from all sports served in the war, you know, to great distinction and then lost valuable. Because remember, 
the window of opportunity for athletes is very, very brief. From your, your 20s into your early to mid 30s, and that's it. And those were the years that Greenberg lost. You know, when he came back, he didn't think he'd be able to play ball again. And when the, the first game he comes back, he hits a home run. Or no, the last game before he went in, he hit a home run, and then he hit the home run that helped the Tigers win the pennant in 1945. Yes. Did uh, Ruth and Greenberg have any interaction during their game? They did, they did. Uh, Ruth said he hoped Greenberg would break the record. And they're, they're, I wish I was able to get the rights to the picture in the book. There was a shot of Greenberg visiting Ruth when he was dying. Uh, and Ruth is in a silk bathrobe, and Greenberg in a very natty suit, you know, holding a baseball bat, and Ruth looks terrible. But you know, just the fact that they were together. And, and Greenberg had a great deal of respect for Ruth. You know, uh, growing up in New York, you know, seeing him play, no doubt. Uh, he had a great respect for Gehrig, you know, all, all those people. And, and, and there's a, a few pictures of uh, all, at All-Star Games where those guys are all together. And, and you can see those guys are smiling, but Greenberg is kind of like hanging back, like, uh, like I don't belong here, or, or I'm, these are like heroes and gods, and uh, I'm just me, regular me. Because of the uh, time factor, Bob, this is going to be the last question. Given the focus on uh, both Greenberg and Kopacz being Jewish, No, I don't think they ever had. Uh, I never saw anything in my research. That, but again, I was basically focused on this one year. Uh, I don't remember seeing anything in, in uh, Greenberg's memoir about Koufax other than maybe a laudatory comment. But I, I don't think they ever. I know they both contributed to, uh, to a fundraising efforts for the Maccabee Games. Uh, and there's there speculation that, that that, that Koufax should have been allowed to play for the United States in, in one of the Maccabee games uh, back in, in his heyday. But they were they're both, uh, they're both, Greenberg later in life said that he was, he was not a religious Jew, he was a cultural Jew. And he was very involved in Israel, he was very supportive of Israel and, and Jewish causes. But he, you know, once, uh, once he left his parents' home, he was like no longer much of a, a synagogue. Goer. I, I don't think his kids had bar and bat mitzvahs, uh, so that, that wasn't, and I think one of his wives wasn't Jewish, his second wife I, think, I don't think right. was. He married Carol Gimbel of the Gimbel uh, uh, dynasty, and, and then he married someone who wasn't Jewish, and uh, it was just not that much of an issue for him later. He never denied, obviously, being Jewish. He was very proud of his Jewish heritage, but he was one of these people. He didn't want to be seen as a Jewish ball player. He wanted to be known as a ball player who happened to be Jewish. Was he ever photographed at Macy's? <laughs> <laughs> With his collar turned up and his hat pulled down. The, the, uh, well, on that note, uh, we're going to have the last word is going to be Ron's uh, first word, which is uh, the dedication. And uh, Ron's dedication is this book is dedicated to the memories of Hank Greenberg, Jackie Robinson, and all the other pioneering athletes who battled to succeed for themselves and their communities in the face of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. The book, Hank Greenberg in 1938, Hatred and Home Runs in the Shadow of War, written by Ron Kaplan. Thank you, Ron. Thank you.